0: Morning, Creekside Church. You are all the brave ones that have come back for week two of Ecclesiastes. Woo! Welcome back. If this is your first time back in two weeks, you didn't know we were even in this series. Welcome to Ecclesiastes. It is a fun book. Uh, but before we get into Ecclesiastes, I thought it would be good to give you guys a little history of my schooling today. After all. We are talking about the vanity of wisdom today. (laughs) So it kind of fits. I went to Sac State. Is there anybody else who went to Sac State in here? Woo-woo. Yeah, a couple people. Uh, Okay, that's that's fine. Um, And I studied and graduated with a bachelor's in philosophy, which means I didn't learn much, Um, But what I did learn was to ask good questions, how to write, how to argue, and how to think. And honestly, that's about it. And while I attended Sac State, the philosophy department was full of professors who would profess that they hated Christians, which is a fun place to be. But my time was so rich, and I loved my time with them. I loved every conversation I had. I loved every moment I spent on Sac State's campus learning about philosophy, even though I had a professor write a book called The Case Against Christ. Yes, even with the professor who wrote a book like that, I had so much fun. In fact, he was my favorite professor, without a doubt, my favorite professor. And as I grew closer to my professors, as we had conversations, I recognized a couple things about them. One, they were brilliant, absolutely brilliant. They could map things out and understand questions that I'm like, I don't even know why you're supposed to ask that question. But they knew how to seek things out and find answers, sometimes. They had this knowledge that surpassed so many people and the conversations were so rich but at the same time they had this kind of sadness about them a nihilistic approach to life where nothing mattered in fact i had one professor who said in front of the class that he never tells his son that he's proud of him after all what's the point can you imagine having a dad like that goodness gracious that would be terrible But these are the people that I spent my time with. And I grew to love them so much and our conversations so much. Because even though they did not believe in the religion and what I truly to believe is truth, we were all on a journey of seeking truth. See, philosophy is about asking questions. It's about the pursuit of wisdom and the pursuit of truth, even if we never get there. It's about asking questions and trying to understand why the world is the way it is. And my professors had so much depth to them, so much depth to them. But they also had this side where nothing mattered, except, of course, our grades. That mattered to them deeply. (laughs) Now, I'm not trying to say that all philosophers or atheists are sad. I'm not trying to say that at all. But we as Christians know there is something missing in their lives. And I'm also not trying to say that the questions they're asking are wrong. I'm really not. See, they keep asking questions to pursue truth, even if they don't know what the truth is. And we do. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. But then there were other times where I'd show up to class and we would spend 30 minutes trying to answer a question I had no idea why we needed to answer. Questions like this, if you guys want to see them. Are you ready? Sure. Perfect. Nobody's excited. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Questions like this. Let's say there is a runaway bus. Is it better to switch the track of a bus to kill three people or do nothing and let it kill ten? What a great question, right? Imagine little 20-year-old walking into class with their backpack sitting down. What are we talking about today? And this question pops up. These are the questions that we tried to understand. How do you even answer this question? Some people would say, well, of course, you switch the track to kill the three. After all, three compared to 10. Come on now, obvious choice. How do you quantify a life? How do you say that one life matters more than another? How do you do that? Those are the questions that we tried to answer. Although there were some silly ones like this, What makes kicking a puppy wrong? This was in my ethics class. And the reason my professor asked this question was because on the campus at Sac State during finals, when all the students are freaking out, there would be puppies on campus that you could just go and pet to try to calm down and relax. And my my professor puts this on the board And she says, yeah, it's like I go out and some kid's just petting the puppy trying to relax and I just grab that puppy and I just punt it. And she's saying this in front of the class and we're all like, how dare you? Like, no, that's so wrong. And she goes, why? Why is it wrong? Well, who says it's wrong? If there is no God, who says that that is wrong? And then there's this question which is my personal favorite, but also I hate it. It's if you are entering into a town and you are stopped by an army, and they tell you, if you kill these three people, we will not kill the entire town. But if you walk away, we will let these three people live and kill the entire town. How do you choose this? Also, why in a philosophy class are we talking about killing people so much? But these are the questions that we sat with and we tried to answer, that we would wrestle with and we would spend like 20, 30 minutes trying to argue about how to answer these questions. And yet at the heart of all these questions is this reality that no amount of wisdom, knowledge, or ethical insight can give you the right answer to these. None of it. No matter how much you sit in a classroom, no matter how much philosophy you watch on YouTube or sit in a class, you cannot fully answer these questions in the right way. And that is the difficult part about philosophy, is that there are some questions that have no answers, that no knowledge that we have can answer these questions. There are questions that when asked, we are stumped. We have no idea what to say at all. we only pursue wisdom and knowledge, it is a never ending cycle. It gets frustrating. It is upsetting because there is no supreme truth. If we are only pursuing knowledge under the sun and we don't have a heavenly perspective at all and we don't think God exists, there is no supreme truth. What we are saying is that If you believe your brain was developed from an evolutionary process, your brain has been wired to survive, and that's it. That is the only thing that has been wired to do. How can we trust our brains that are so easily manipulated by lies? How can we trust our brains when we only want to survive? This is a very tricky subject. This is what I spent three years trying to understand how do you answer these types of questions? And this is where we find ourselves in Ecclesiastes today. The preacher is looking into wisdom under the sun and all the things that are undone under the sun. And so if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Ecclesiastes 1. And we're going to look at verses 12 through 18. So Ecclesiastes 1, 12 through 18. They say this, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under the sun. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Aren't you happy you came to church today? Man, to hear about questions that nobody wants to answer and to hear that the pursuit of knowledge is a, a pursuit that increases sorrow. Woo! Welcome to Creekside Church, everybody. Oh, man. Well, as we dig into the scripture today, let's start by praying because if we don't pray, I don't think we'll ever truly understand what's going on in these words. So, Lord, I pray that as we dive deep into the preacher's words here in Ecclesiastes, that although he is looking at knowledge and looking at things from an under the sun perspective, Lord, I pray that you would calm our hearts, our minds, and our souls so that we can see things from a heavenly perspective. Lord, I pray that we would recognize that a pursuit of knowledge and wisdom is worthless without you. I pray these things in your son's name. Amen. So let's take a look at the first couple of verses, 12 through 15. The first thing that we can notice is that verse 12 starts with, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, which means the preacher is the king over Israel. And this is important for a multiple different reasons. The first one is that he's a king, which means he has the resources to stop doing what he's doing and pursue anything he wants. He has resources to the ends of the earth for him. The second thing to notice is that he is king over Israel, Israel, which means he's king over God's people. And the third thing to recognize is that means he believes in the Lord which means as he's going on this pursuit, as we're going to read through the next couple of weeks of things under the sun, he knows what's up in heaven. He knows, and yet he's choosing to pause that and pursue his doubts. He's choosing to decide, I'm going to pursue everything that's under the sun because he wants to see if there's any merit in it. Is there any value in it if we only have An under the sun perspective. And we see in verse 13 that he devotes himself to this pursuit of all that is done under heaven. Last week we heard under the sun. Under heaven is literally the same thing. So it kind of just means the same thing. Uh, In other words, he is pursuing what people without a heavenly perspective are pursuing. Power, pleasure, um, knowledge, money, all these different things, all things that people who do not know Jesus are pursuing and call the quote-unquote good life. And here in verse 13, we see that he is devoting his entire heart. I applied my heart. So this means that it's not just a like small pursuit at all. He's devoting himself to this study. It's like a doctorate student who devotes everything they have to a certain subject for a certain amount of time to find a certain answer. And I know when we hear heart, we think, oh, passion. He was just burning with passion after this. No, that's not what this means. It's not like what we think. It is a complete devotion, heart, mind, and soul to discover what is the purpose? What is the good life? What is going on in this world around us? It is a search that he is seeking to find the universal question of the meaning of life and the human condition. This is no easy task. It's like striving after the wind. And that's why in verse 14, he says that striving after the wind. And striving is this beautiful word, and in its original context, it actually could mean three things. It could mean desiring, it could mean striving, or it could mean shepherding. And I like shepherding because then it says that the pursuit of all this, everything done under the sun, is like shepherding the wind. Have you guys ever tried to shepherd the wind? I mean, think of a shepherd, right? They get their sheep, they try to pull them a certain direction and they're like, cool, my sheep are safe. You can't do that with wind. You try to grasp it and it just goes. It goes through your fingers. Like there is no way to shepherd the wind. And I believe this is why in the next verse, he says, what is crooked cannot be made straight and what is lacking cannot be counted because if you're trying to shepherd the wind, you're gonna be annoyed all the time. And if you're only pursuing what's under the sun, this is what it leads to. Is that what is crooked can't be made straight. We can't find meaning in just knowledge and wisdom. It does not answer the fundamental problems of life. In fact, sometimes it makes it easier, but it doesn't answer all the questions. And the pursuit of knowledge and wisdom under the sun is to chase after something that will never end. It doesn't have a heavenly perspective. How do you know what truth is without some supreme being telling us there's truth? There is no meaning to life without God. None. What is crooked cannot be made straight. The hearts of man cannot be changed without God sending Jesus down to die on the cross for us. That is the only way to make what is crooked become straight. A man coming down and dying so that we can have life that's it. No amount of knowledge that you gain can make you any happier or sadder. It's just knowledge. You can gain more knowledge than another person, which might make you have a little bit of pride for a second until you realize, guess what? There's another person smarter than you. It's a never-ending cycle of recognizing that your pursuit never ends. It's always chasing the wind. And then the preacher continues in verses 16 through 18. And in these verses, he says, I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom surpassing all who were before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is but striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. So in these verses, it's super similar to the first set of verses, right? But now we're getting an even more in-depth look into his search. We're getting this in-depth look into him only pursuing knowledge and wisdom. And here he shows us, yeah, I surpassed everyone. I'm brilliant, obviously, I applied my heart to wisdom and to no madness. And guess what? It's sorrowful. That's what it is. And I love that he puts uh, folly and madness. I love that that's here. Because if you pursue wisdom, and that's it, it is a never-ending cycle. You learn a little bit more, and then you realize you're ignorant. And then you're like, oh, actually, I don't know as much as I think I do. Oh, let's restart studying. Oh, I know something. It's a never-ending cycle that goes on and on and on. And we learn More, We do recognize our own ignorance, but we also recognize the ignorance in others. We recognize our own evil as we gain knowledge, but we also recognize the evil in others. And so we think we're achieving this enlightenment as we get smarter and smarter and smarter, but we're not. See, because if we're only looking at what's under the sun, and we're recognizing the evil around us, and we're recognizing the ignorance around us, how do you quantify that without God? How do you quantify what's good and bad? How do you quantify good and evil? You can't. There is no reason. There is nothing. And that is the vanity of wisdom under the sun. There are so many questions that we can't find answers to. And that's why wisdom is much vexation. Vexation is a really fun word. I don't know why it's here. But it means annoyance, frustration, or worry. So wisdom leads to annoyance, frustration, and worry when only pursued under the sun. And he who increases in knowledge increases in sorrow. This was the quest of the preacher to find meaning through education, wisdom, and knowledge. And by looking at my time in philosophy and looking at my professors, I can't help but think that the pursuit of wisdom and knowledge is so frustrating because without a supreme truth, without this idea of what truth is, you are chasing after wind. Philosophy means seeking the truth, but if there is no truth, If you don't believe in Jesus, if you don't believe in God, it's pointless. You're running after something you can never reach. And that's where we find ourselves here in Ecclesiastes. And I love how a commentary sums up this entire section. It says, the preacher's quest is first to observe and assess human achievement. The preacher concludes that everything is enigmatic and that humans are finite and thus powerless to alter certain realities of the post-fall world. The preacher then assesses human intellect and epistemology and he concludes that the accumulation of learning and wisdom is ultimately ineffective as these virtues add only to one's frustration and grief. The attempt to solve the problem of life, with wisdom only enlarges the problem. It can lead to momentary happiness, it can lead to success, but it ultimately leads to bitterness and disgust. The more you know about the hearts of man, the more frustrated you are, and it's heartbreaking. And I know there's this phrase out there, uh, knowledge is power but knowledge is not power if you don't have God. Knowledge is not power, and it leads to heartbreak and bitterness. And at the end of our lives, we can't take knowledge with us. At the end of our lives on our deathbed, are we going to wish we read one more book? And I'm a reader, so there's that. But as I even think about this... um, Some of us will begin to lose uh, knowledge before we're even on our deathbed. I've seen it happen in family members um, who have struggled with Alzheimer's and dementia. I've seen some of the most brilliant people in my life fall apart in front of me. We can't take wisdom with us and it is not promised. And I believe that's why it is frustrating and just causes so much grief because we just wish we could. We just wish that our knowledge here under the sun could lead us to something that's more hopeful, but it can't answer the meaning of life. It leads us to sorrow, maybe because of what we're experiencing, but also maybe because we wasted our time. The preacher here is not saying that knowledge and wisdom are pointless. That is not what he's saying. I love school, I love college, I highly recommend those things. But what he is saying is if you make it your life's purpose and that's it, it is a never ending cycle a cycle that has sparked many religions, subjects, and sciences, psychology, philosophy, sociology, and the list goes on and on and on, all seeking to answer the question of what is the meaning under the sun. And the funny thing about philosophy is it looks a little bit like this. (laughs) And what do I mean by this, right? What I mean by this is, let's say there's four people. The first one comes up with this idea, right? Brilliant idea. You hear it for the first time and you're like life shattering. Oh my gosh. Okay. Then the second person comes along and says actually that first person was a complete idiot. He knew nothing at all. This is why I'm right. Then a third person comes along and says, no, the second person was actually an idiot and the first person had some parts, right, but not all parts. Right. Then a fourth person comes along and is like, no, everyone before me was wrong and this is why I'm right philosophy 101. There you go. Uh, You can pay my tuition late. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, (laughs) And before you say, well, of course this is a sequence. The first person, second person, third person, fourth person. That makes sense. We're going through history. We're learning more. We're getting wiser. We're getting smarter. We are in an Ecclesiastes series. So I'm just going to crush your guys' hearts right now about that. I don't know if any of you have heard of the Flynn effect and it's going to give you some hope for a second. But the Flynn effect came to be because an intelligence researcher noticed that IQ scores were increasing from one generation to the next, which means obviously people are getting wiser. People are getting smarter. No, that's actually not what this means at all, and the Flynn effect has been severely debunked, like I said, cycle. Here's why. We have more knowledge available to us right in front of us. Phones, iPads, television. We have knowledge, but it does not make us wiser. Not even close. Just because you know something does not mean you're smarter or wiser, and this is a humbling reality. And it's definitely slightly depressing to think that any knowledge under the sun is just vanity. That's it, it's vanishing, it's gone. On your deathbed, you can't even take it with you. And so now that we're done talking about this perspective of under the sun, how many of you guys need some hope right now? You know what I mean? I'm feeling it too. So let's look at wisdom from a heavenly perspective. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Corinthians 1. 1 Corinthians 1. And in this section, I believe Paul is writing a letter to someone like the preacher. Who is just pursuing knowledge or pursuing the ways of everything under the sun? And Paul says, let's look at it from a heavenly perspective. So, 1 Corinthians 1 18 through 31, it says this For the word of the cross is fully to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. And the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wise of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demanded a sign, and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and fully to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standard. You are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let no one, or let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. So, Paul here is literally saying the same thing the preacher did. But here, Paul adds so much more to it. He is showing us that wisdom is found in Jesus. He is showing us that the wisdom of Jesus leads to righteousness and sanctification and redemption. John 1 says that Jesus came with grace and truth. That is wisdom. We see in verse 32, Paul say here, And because of him, you are in Christ, who came to us from God or came to us wisdom from God. Jesus is the wisdom we're meant to pursue because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through Jesus. Elsewhere in 1 Corinthians, Paul says knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Because when we love someone, we are showing them the truth of Jesus. We are showing them the power of Jesus. Jesus. Pursuing knowledge just for knowledge's sake does not lead to this. It leads to us being puffed up. But if you pursue college, if you pursue schooling, if you pursue more education with the idea that this will help me show others who Jesus is, this will help me in my workforce show who Jesus is, this will help me in my home show who Jesus is, that is real wisdom. That is the pursuit of a heavenly perspective. And here's the truth is we've been shown two different perspectives today. We've been shown what happens from a under the sun perspective when we pursue wisdom. It leads to suffering. It leads to sorrow. It leads to longing for an answer that we can never find the answer to. But then there's another perspective. A perspective that says I will look at a heavenly perspective in every situation I'm in. I will pursue to show who Jesus is as I study the word, as I study other subjects. I will look for small truths that tie Jesus to science. I will look for subjects that show that in philosophy, that seeking of the truth is the seeking of Jesus Christ. That is the pursuit of a heavenly perspective. And so to close us out, it's worth asking this question. Which perspective are you pursuing? Because one of these perspectives leads to vexation and sorrow. But another perspective, a heavenly perspective, it leads to righteousness, redemption, and sanctification. Which are you pursuing? God, I pray as we close out the service and we head into a time of worship that we would seek to answer this question. What is it that we are pursuing? What is it that we need to pursue? How do we have the perspective of your son? How do we step into situations and say, give me a heavenly perspective so I can show who Jesus is in this moment? How do we have a heavenly perspective and recognize that the wisdom we pursue is only truly fulfilled in the way, the truth, and the life? Lord, I pray that whatever we are pursuing in this life, that we would have the right perspective of it. Lord, I pray that we would shift to a heavenly perspective that recognizes Jesus came in grace and truth. Amen. Amen.